The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Dana Geffner. She has been working in fair trade and food justice movements for 25 years and is the co-founder and former executive director of Fair World Project the leading fair trade advocacy organization in the United States. She was the editor of For a Better World magazine for a decade and the host of For a Better World podcast. Ms. Geffner is also co-founder and board member of Grow Ahead, a grassroots farmer organization-driven crowdfunding platform for a climate resiliency project in the global south. Along with Patagonia, Dr. Bronner's, and the Rodale Institute, Ms. Geffner helped develop the Regenerative Organic Certification, a consumer label that helps us purchase products that are grown and manufactured using regenerative organic techniques, which help protect us against the climate catastrophe, protect animals, and provide fair livelihoods for farmers and workers globally. And she is currently writing a book which celebrates Grassroots Organizing for Food Sovereignty. Ms. Geffner holds a master's degree in public policy from the University of California at Berkeley and a graduate certificate in food systems from the prestigious Berkeley Food Institute. Welcome, Dana. Hi there. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm really pleased to bring the topic of fair trade to our listeners. I think it's something that doesn't get nearly enough attention. I am curious to know... What first led your interest in food justice and fair trade? Well, my journey into the fair trade world, into the fair trade movement, wasn't so straightforward. I was basically traveling and learning about international policies that were impacting communities that I was visiting and getting to know or falling in love with. And I was learning about all the injustices happening in majority countries, and I say majority countries because most of the people in the world live in places that people call third world countries, which I do not use that term. And so I was traveling and really learning about all these impacts that policy was having on these communities, how people were surviving. And I was starting to learn about policies that the United States government was implementing, had implemented, that was creating extreme poverty and people were losing their land. So I was starting to learn about all of these injustices. And I was, you know, I was a middle class girl from Los Angeles. I really didn't understand what was going on in the world. I was in my early 20s and I was learning about these injustices and realizing that I was comfortable while other people were not comfortable But even more importantly, I was learning that I was comfortable because other people were uncomfortable and being really impacted by the things that I was being able to take advantage of. So that's how I started. I was in Guatemala and I was learning backstrap weaving. 
which is a traditional art that Maya indigenous people, women, actually use to create their clothing. And I was learning about them having to give up that traditional technique and go work in sweatshops. I was learning about the Nicaragua and Sandinistas that had been democratically voted in by the people in Nicaragua, but then was ousted pretty much by the Reagan administration. And so I was learning about all of this and realizing that I needed to do something. So I started working with people that were members of co-ops that I had met along my journey and bringing back these beautiful handicrafts to sell to people in the United States. But really, through selling these beautiful handicrafts, I wanted to be able to tell these stories about these international policies that were impacting these communities. And that's what I did. So I started bringing back handicrafts. I really started in the handicraft world and the fair trade movement, but with the desire to educate people about international policies and how people were losing their land and having to move into really horrible working conditions. So I started doing that and I had my own business selling handicrafts and coffee and chocolate items that are pretty well known in the fair trade movement. I did that for a number of years. And then I started working for Global Exchange, which is a human rights organization. And they had five fair trade retail stores around the country. And I started working with about 30 different producer organizations, bringing handicrafts to their stores. And then I started learning more and more about the challenges of people being able to grow their own food, all of these communities, people in these co-ops. They all had small pieces of land. They were growing their own food, but they were losing their land. And also we were dealing with the climate emergency. They never knew when the rain was coming. It was coming too hard. It was coming too late. It wasn't coming at all. And they were really struggling to figure out how to stay on their land and how to feed their families. And that's when I got into more around the food systems and thinking about what was happening in food systems in different countries. I love something that you said earlier about how you realized that your own comfort was based on or depended on somebody else's discomfort. And I think that that's such an important realization. I've had it too myself. And especially I think as a food consumer, when we go into the store, I think most of us are driven by price and taste. We want food that tastes good, certainly, but boy, it's really hard to move away from the cheapest price. And part of that is because so many people are struggling, but even people who could afford to make different choices seem to be guided by that lower price, but that lower price comes at a cost. It comes at a huge cost. And unfortunately, those cheaper products are like right in our line, right? Like it's the easiest thing to grab. So everyone's so busy. They've got several jobs. They're barely making ends meet or even people that have the money, they're still running around like crazy. And the first thing they see is something that it's cheap because of the way supermarkets put things on their shelves, where they put them on the shelves, marketing, how much marketing costs. So these really big brands have the money to market to us. So we see that first and all the brands that are doing things that are in a sustainable way, you can't see, you can't find. So it's cost and it's accessibility. Exactly. So we talk about fair trade. We've heard free trade. I don't think that these terms are really well understood. 
Can you define them for us and help us see them as the different entities that they are? Uh, so fair trade, fair trade is a system where people are organizing, which is a key tenant of the fair trade principles. They're organizing together so they can take advantage of economies of scale. So they can buy raw ingredients together in bulk. So it's at a cost that they can manage. They have access to the market together. They can have access to markets easier. They can find funding easier when they're in a group. They can deal with the challenges together. When they're organized, they can demand higher prices. So fair trade, one of the fair trade principles is paying fair wages or fair payments to small farmers. It's also about small farmers organizing together. So it's not about like huge farms coming together and organizing, but it's around small scale farmers organizing. It's about having long term relationships with people that are buying their raw ingredients. That's a key tenant. It's about community development projects. It's about being able to put some sort of money into building up things that governments should be doing, such as schools, clean water systems, things like that. And then on the flip side, free trade is really about corporate profit. It's this neoliberal mindset that the more money we make, more people are going to survive and prosper, which we all know that Reaganomics doesn't work. We've seen it play over and over and over again where it doesn't work. And it's really these free trade agreements that are written, are really written between countries, are written with corporations sitting down and figuring out what the best policies are for them to create more and more profits, despite what the environmental costs are, despite how workers are going to be treated, how small farmers are going to be treated, how they're treating their land, if they're going to survive. So NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreements, is a great example. It's the agreement between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And it really came into play because corn farmers in the United States, I use corn as a great example, corn farmers in the United States were growing more and more corn. They had a surplus of corn. They needed to figure out where they could sell their corn. So NAFTA, one of the agreements was that they could sell their corn into the Mexican economy. Now, United States farmers, corn farmers, are heavily subsidized by the U.S. government. And so them dumping their cheap corn on the Mexican economy has decimated the Mexican economy. Over 2 million small farmers have lost their land, not because they're inefficient at growing corn, but because they can't compete against those heavy subsidies. So this cheap U.S. corn is dumped on the Mexican economy for 30% less than what Mexican farmers can grow their corn for. And there's been lots of things that happen from that, not just corn farmers, but other people have lost their businesses because of that. And it's just snowball effect. And the Zapatistas in 1994 took up arms for 12 bloody days because they said that NAFTA was going to be the death to all small farmers. And that's exactly what we saw happen. So these free trade agreements are really negotiated behind closed doors in the name of profits, rather than being negotiated with small farmers, with worker representatives, with environmental advocacy organizations. And there's even provisions in these free trade agreements that allows corporations to sue governments that are trying to protect their environment, to protect their people if there is a perceived loss 
of profits to those corporations. And we have seen a number of those lawsuits happen. If anyone's interested, Public Citizen has some great information on all those lawsuits that are happening. Wow. I don't think people have any idea what's going on. You know, we get this. It's really propaganda about how great and efficient these free trade agreements are when really there are people being hurt, as you say, for corporate profit. And I think, too, we have to have a discussion about what the after effects are. What are the unintended consequences of having corn from the United States go into Mexico, then all of a sudden Mexican farmers can no longer support their families. And we wonder why so many people are trying to cross our border. That's right. And then we have these terrible immigration laws that are treating people subhumanly. And really, it's our fault that people want to leave their hand. No one wants to leave their home. Like exactly. people, I really believe that people have to understand that. Like, would you leave your home if you didn't have to? The only reason someone's leaving their home is to feed their family, to take care of their children. No one wants to do that. And people just don't want to understand that. Right. Um, they don't want to see that they literally do not have a choice. Exactly. Well, I am going to provide a link where people can learn more about this topic. And of course, after your book comes out, we will have to revisit a conversation but I want to take a break because we're halfway through and just remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio and we are speaking today with Ms. Dana Geffner. She has been working in fair trade and food justice movements for over two decades. She is the co-founder and former executive director of Fair World Project, which is the leading fair trade advocacy organization in the United States. And we'll provide a link both to for the organization. And then you can read her articles in Better World magazine and tune into some of the excellent podcasts there as well. One of the things, Dana, on your website that I appreciated as a consumer food educator is a quote unquote simple chart. It's a reference guide that I'm sure a lot of work and painstaking energy went into, but it's a guide to fair trade and labor justice programs. Because when we go into the grocery store, we want to make a good decision, but it's difficult to navigate some of those labels. So there's food justice certified, there's fair, there's fair trade. How on earth do we make sense of all of this? You know, the average person might think, well, it's fairly traded. Good. I will invest my money there. But not all of the organizations or certifications are the same. How do we navigate that space? Yeah, it's a super complex one. That's what I've spent so many years trying to figure out how to communicate to consumers, how to really figure out what they should be supporting. And, you know, the, the question always is, well, isn't something better than nothing? And I have a hard time with that one because... No, I don't believe something is better than nothing in all cases, because when someone puts a logo on their packaging, it doesn't mean anything. It actually ends up undermining movements that are trying to move the needle. So, for example, there's one certification, Fair Trade USA, that everybody sees. It's actually all over the place because it's easier certification to actually receive. Well, they've been allowing that certification to go on products with in ingredients that are grown on very large plantations where there's lots of workers. So it's actually serving to undermine 
these workers organizing by slapping a logo on these products that were grown with those ingredients. And it's so complicated to actually explain, um, which is why we did podcasts. We have a great pot. Our second season of For a Better World really talks about Chopani's supply chain and what Fairtrade USA did to undermine workers organizing there. So that's a great resource if people want to understand. But there are different guides out there. As you mentioned, we have the reference guide on the website that breaks down what these different certifications mean. You can try to figure out what's important to you. And there's other reports that are out there. We created more reports than just a reference guide. But also what we tried to do is tried to get buyers at retailers to really understand the certifications and to prioritize brands that were using certifications that were much stronger because it's very difficult for consumers to actually make those choices. And I actually don't believe that consumers can make those choices. I believe retail buyers can and have a lot more information at their disposal. And so we need to pressure retail buyers in how they're how they're prioritizing and who they're prioritizing putting on their shelves. So pressuring retailers is a really good way to go. Let's talk about that because you had a big win with Whole Foods and getting Hershey to change some of their practices. I don't know how many of our listeners understand just how much child labor is used in cocoa production, but why don't you tell the story of what happened with Whole Foods? Yeah. So there was the Raise the Bar campaign that had been going on for years. And this was a campaign that was started by Co-op America, which is now Green America. So Green America and Global Exchange and the ILRF, the International Labor Rights Forum. Those three organizations had a huge campaign called Raise the Bar, which was about Hershey's supply chain and getting people to stop buying Hershey's and push Hershey's to stop using child labor in their supply chains. And so that was going on for years. And then when Fair World Project came on the scene, when we decided to start Fair World Project in 2010, we wanted to support that campaign. And we had really close ties with retailers, Whole Foods, and some of the other retailers, co-op grocery stores, and a lot of the brands. So we used our leverage and went to Whole Foods and pressured them to drop Hershey's chocolate bars. So we got consumers to go to Whole Foods to tell them to stop carrying Hershey's and Whole Foods did. Whole Foods said, we aren't going to carry Hershey's anymore. They dropped them. Hershey's came out and said, we will clean up our supply chain. Well, they said, we will certify our cocoa by 2018, whatever that meant, certified cocoa which didn't mean very much because they didn't say they were going to certify a fair trade. They didn't give much information. But the NGOs that had started the campaign said it was a win. We got them to do something. That's what they said. We were not on board with that and wanted to keep going. But they ended up dropping that Raise the Bar campaign and it kind of fizzled out and died. But I think what it really showed was that consumers have the power to stand up against these massive corporations if they organize. And so that's what we did with Hershey's, and that's what we've done in a number of other cases. Well, and I think it's important for consumers to know where to go to join with others in this organized attempt to change the food system, because it's really hard being a sole consumer and thinking, gosh, this issue is so big, what do I do? So I like the idea of people being able to go to your website as well as Green America and others 
to find out what are the campaigns going on and what can I do that's going to make the most meaningful difference. Right. It is very important. I do also think that we know now, though, after decades of trying to pressure corporations into doing the right thing, that they are not going to do the right thing unless there's policies that are going to force them, which is a whole nother discussion that we can have around third party, voluntary third party certifications. So one of the things, and I'm mentioning this because I think people could go to corporateaccountabilitylab.org. That's an organization using the law that's on the books to pressure corporations and to sue corporations to change their business practices. They are also going after these certifiers that are allowing some of these really nasty brands to actually use their certification on their labeling when only a small portion of whatever they're doing might be decent. So corporateaccountabilitylab.org is another great organization that people can support. Of course, they are all lawyers and they are using the law, which we need. Now we say third-party certifications are... Scary, in fact, not just useless, but scary and undermining organizing if they are not coupled with working on policy change as well. We need them both. And policy moves very slowly. So we need the third party certifications as well. But we need them together. One without the other doesn't work. I'm so glad you brought this up because there's always this dialogue about can we fix the food system with our individual forks? And I like your approach because yes, it's important for individual consumers and even more important for institutional buyers to have a big influence in terms of driving the market. But everything boils down to policy. We really do need everything. That's right. So speaking of policies, the farm bill comes up every five years. What would you want to see changed in the farm bill that might contribute to a fairer marketplace? You know, 1% of the farm bill is for organic farming. So we need to increase organic farming. We need to increase the support to small farmers. So funding needs to be put in there for small-scale farmers. They need to be put in there for training around organic, training around sustainability, training around regenerative agriculture. And not and money not provided to conventional farming, which is what it does on a grand scale. That's exactly right. And you have a good bit of information on your website about COVID aid and how those dollars went to large food corporations. But again, the small farmers who really needed it lost out. Right. I mean, the small farmers lost out. The small businesses lost out. I mean, as long as we live in this country where it's it's really this world where we believe that big business is going to save the day, I mean, they have all the power. We need to change those power dynamics so that they don't have access to their banks, that they, you know, they can go to the banks that they have great relationships with and get that funding first. Real policies are not put in place for small farmers, people that are struggling because if you're struggling, then you can't get money. It's just such a bad cycle. Well, I think that your focus on small farmers and why they are so important is critical because another thing I don't think we understand completely, and part of that is because of the propaganda that we're fed, you know, we've got to get big or get out of agriculture and we've got to have this big industrialized consolidated food system because if we don't, we won't be able to feed the world. But what I learned from your website is actually 70% 
of all of the food produced is produced by small farmers. So small farmers are feeding the world. That's right. They are around the world. They most certainly are. Yeah, you're right. Well, we just have a couple more minutes and I want to open the floor to you. What do you want our listeners to know? What I would like listeners to know and to think about is not being active. Well, several things. Not being active in policy change is detrimental for everyone. People are ignoring being involved in politics because nobody wants people don't want, you know, no one's bipartisan anymore. Everybody is partisan. And so nobody wants to talk about policy, but people need to be active in our democratic system for it to work. So that's one. I think I would love for people to really understand that people are organizing on the ground all over the world, here and everywhere to change systems, and that we need to listen to people that are impacted by everything that's happening in the world because they have the solutions. And I think that people can be inspired and to have hope that there is wonderful organizing going on and people just need, they just need support in their organizing. And so beyond what you're buying, I think that people can support those organizing efforts in very different ways, whether it's money or sharing information as you are doing so wonderfully. Um, That's huge. Or volunteering with an organization that's organizing around food systems. There's so many things people can do. And Fair World Project, even though you are no longer the executive director there, that site will remain active with information for consumers, yes? Yes, yes, it will. A whole bunch of information on there. So many tools on there that buyers can use, that retail buyers can use, that consumers can use. And if people are strapped for time and they want to go into the store and their attitude is, just tell me which label to look for, do you want to bring forth maybe just a handful of certification labels that really do mean something? I generally try to stay away from that answer because I think they're all problematic when just looking at a label. But I do think you can look for the Agricultural Justice Project. I think you can look for the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, CIW, which they have a fair food program. You can look for that, FFP. Those are domestic standards. You can also look at the Real Organic Project, ROP. You can look at the Regenerative Organic Certification, which is the ROC. I think those are strong ones. And Fair Trade International, that gets very tricky because people get confused between Fair Trade USA and Fair Trade International. So that's a whole nother discussion. But the green and blue symbol is the one that has stronger standards. Fair for Life is one that people can look for. I think those are the ones that I would probably recommend at this point. And Equal Exchange, which is pretty common in many markets. Equal Exchange is actually a brand. They're not a certification. I was actually on their board for a number of years, and they're they're one of the founding fair trade organizations, and they are an amazing worker-owned co-op, only working with worker-owned co-ops. I highly recommend buying any Equal Exchange products, but they are not a certification. But I do recommend Equal Exchange products. All right. Very good. Well, we've got to close, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. 
And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Ms. Dana Geffner. She has been working in fair trade and food justice movements for decades. She is the co-founder and former executive director of Fair World Project, which is the leading fair trade advocacy organization in the United States. I will provide a link to that organization and we will be back in touch after your excellent book is published. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.